I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make some money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you, put all this in perspective. Call me at 1-800-743-CBC. Or, of course, tweet me at Jim Kramer. All weekend, all weekend I heard about it. I heard about the scary tariffs and how they'll destroy the market. My Twitter feed was filled with the sky is falling predictions. I got stopped in the street no fewer than three times about how horrendous Monday will be. And that was in Brooklyn. Apparently, there was no way we could avoid a date with disaster. The president supposedly put us on a collision course with the new bear market. What can I say? If this is your idea of a bear attack, Dow surging 337 points, the S&P roaring 1.1 percent, and the Nasdaq pole volley 1 percent, we clearly need more tariffs. Heck, maybe a full-on trade war is exactly what this market needs to go to the next level. All right, I kid. But the fact is, the vast majority of the experts turned out to be dead wrong on this issue, at least so far. How is that possible? How could I have been bullish when they were bearish and they'd be wrong? Okay, let's go over it. First, as I explained last week, the bear case here is just way too negative. Bordering on hysterical, frankly. The truth is that China is the real target of these charges. Target of these tariffs. China, get that through your head. Even if they're going to apply to a lot of other countries, too. And China did, let's say, nothing to retaliate over the weekend. Sure, we only get 1% of our steel from the Chinese. But that's not the point. You heard it over and over again, but it's not the point. As we hear later in this show, when we speak to the CEO of one of the world's largest steel companies and our own biggest, Nucor, China subsidizes its steelmakers, producing far more of the stuff than it needs and then dumping it all over the world at ridiculously low prices. Canada, Latin America, Europe, you name it. These nations then turn around and sell their own steel into our markets at depressed prices. Because we don't put up a fight. Or at least we didn't until last week. Basically, the People's Republic is artificially pushing the global price of steel lower in order to create make-work jobs for its own citizens. And who pays the price? We do! Our industry! There are many explanations for why China didn't retaliate. Maybe they're just being patient. But I suspect, I suspect that Beijing is far less eager to get into a trade war than we are. They're an export-oriented economy. They don't want our markets being closed to their products. See, our markets are too important. Boy, we're so down on ourselves. We, we really just don't even understand ourselves. So reason number one why the stock market took off like a rocket is that the Chinese know they aren't playing fair here. And they chose not to escalate. Because escalating them 
Well, escalating hurts them as much as it hurts us. Who knows? They may even scale down their excessive steel production now that they're getting pushback. That would not be a surprise to me. It's a dirty, polluting business, at least over there. It is not here. A million people die each year from respiratory illness in China. This only makes it worse. Second reason, as much as the so-called experts seem hell-bent on inflaming the trade war rhetoric, or at least instigating one, it's simply not that big a deal to most companies. I could go on and on about the merits of this policy, but you don't come here for mad tariffs and trade. This is mad money. So let me explain that for every publicly traded company I find that could be hurt by retaliation, even if we get it, I can find 10 more that won't see their numbers come down, not one whit. More importantly, these tariffs on steel and on aluminum simply won't cause that many estimate cuts. It's a very big deal for the steel and aluminum industries, but small potatoes for nearly everyone else. Get that through your head. It's small potatoes. Third reason. The U.S. economy remains incredibly strong. The tax cuts, the deregulation, the newfound lending, the lack of houses, the robust oil and gas market, the revival of manufacturing. Yes, the the reindustrialization of our nation. These things are happening, even if it's only in Cray America that we talk about it. Each of these stories is a big deal, much bigger than attacks on a couple of metals. Look, the president, even with all this bluster, is not going to risk this roaring economy, even if you think he's willing to cut off his nose to spite his face when it comes to dealing with our trading partners. Plus, I suspect the whole protectionist push may end up adding jobs here as foreign manufacturers decide to build factories in our country simply to placate a president that they're scared of. I cannot for the life of me figure out why so many people believe every single one of our trading partners is going to come after us. Unlike, say, China or South Korea, the United States has a fantastic market wide open to everybody. Who wants to risk losing access to that over a measly 25% duty on steel or 10% tariff on aluminum? It would be so stupid. Better for our trading partners to turn the other cheek and move on. The president is betting that's exactly what will happen. You know what? I think it's a reasonable outcome. Fourth, as much as Trump figures he can impose these restrictions unilaterally, there is plenty of pushback from his own party across the board. Uh, They don't like the nature of the tariffs. They want it to be a little more targeted. Lots of Republican congressmen don't want to lose NAFTA. Others, like Speaker Paul Ryan, believe completely in the gospel of free trade. The Speaker's aggressively against this move and thinks it could derail our whole economy. So if you were worried about these tariffs, there's still a chance they won't happen or won't be as severe as they announce. By the way, they are severe. I'm not denying that one bit. 25% is big. Now, that brings me to the fifth point to focus, right? The consumers of steel and aluminum in America can easily afford this. It's less than a third of a penny for cans, slightly more than $100 for a car. It's simply not that big a deal versus the huge handout that Congress gave the business community. Even for big consumers of this stuff like Boeing and Caterpillar, the corporate tax cuts more than offset the impact of the tariffs. Hence why these two stocks, both clubbed last week, bounced back so hard today. And remember, you can't get a plane. How many times do we have to do that Boeing story? You can't get one. The line's too long. Reason number six. This is a little harder to get your head around, but money flows from where it's scared to where it's safe, and it does so in a hurry. We saw this happen late Friday afternoon. It occurred again today. There are tons of areas that are just safe. What I, 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 I can't help it. They're safe. I did too much work to say that they're not safe. Let's consider the original fang that we coined, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google and Alphabet. Facebook doesn't have much Chinese business. It's not that important to them. Amazon, please. China has its own Amazon. It's called Alibaba. Uh, Again, not that important. How about Netflix? Uh, They're not in China. Today, Netflix got a big boost from the analyst at UBS, talking about how the moat between it and all their entertainment companies is growing because of the original content. I remember when everyone assumed that content was a huge negative since it was so expensive to produce. I guess a negative became a positive. As for Alphabet, nay, Google, 
Uh, did you forget that these guys have forsaken China? Uh, they're not in there. Uh, of the huge international companies I follow, Alphabet may be the least shortable off of the Chinese retaliation fears, or you could say the most viable. They're already outside the great firewall of China. There's nothing more that PRC can do to them. There are a whole swaths of this market that are nowhere near the blast zone. The retailers are largely domestic, even if many of them sell merchandise that's made in China. The financials, with the exception of some very, 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 very large banks, don't have China exposure. Healthcare? I don't think so. Those groups rallied hard today. Finally, point seven. Despite the harsh words from our trading partners, our, I love to put quotes on that because I just don't think they're my, they ain't my kind of partner. Our allies in Europe and Canada and Latin America know the deal. They recognize that it's China behind the oversupply. Everyone assumes they'll retaliate against us, but we're just going tit for tat here. It's China that's dumping its deal over the rest of the world. It's China, people. I'll repeat that over and over again. If they retaliate against anyone, it may end up being the Chinese. In the end, China floods the world with steel and aluminum as a jobs program. They can find other ways to put their people to work. They put them in the military. They did that with the 8th Army, remember, in the 40s? Yeah. This thing is about excess capacity, and they are the creators of it. Now, remember, it's not just the trade issue. We also got way too negative in general. The stock market went too far down and after a big run and got oversold. So we were due for a bounce today, and nothing that the president tweeted was going to change that. Bottom line, unless actual estimates get cut, I mean, like cut, cut, cut. And they haven't been. Not a one. There's just not enough of a substantive bear case out there. Now, that could change Friday if we get an overheated employment report, which I think is far more important than all this, and the yield on the tenure blitzes through 3%. But right now, there's just too much. There's just too much that is going right, people, and not enough negatives to do the job of keeping stocks down, let alone have them crash like the worrywarts insisted would happen all weekend. Larry Massachusetts. Larry! Hey, Jim. Always grateful to catch up. Thanks for the focus. Not a problem. What's happening? Well, in November, you discussed Tyson as a millennial-friendly stock because of the preference for chicken over other animal proteins. Yeah! My daughter, Joe, in New York, for whom I started a position, validates this thesis. Despite Tyson's 43% five-year dividend growth rate, consumer stocks, as you know, have dropped due to rising interest rates and the ETF blight you decried in Get Rich Carefully. Right. Tyson is round-tripped from November 1st, initially hit again today by the drought in Argentina, increasing feed costs. With a 6% loss, do I double down, or do you have another stock You know, Larry, I wasn't thrilled about that last quarter. I, I really wasn't, and I've been a big fan of Tyson's. But the stock has come down a lot. I think it's an interesting level, but I have no catalyst, Larry. I can't just say there and say, this is the level to buy Tyson. I actually prefer ConAgra right here. Now I go to Allen in Florida, please. Allen! Yes, hi, Jim. Long-time listener, read over your books, and first-time caller. All right, Thanks good. That's fresh blood. What's up? little guy. Okay. Thank you. Uh, regarding the death of retail, I'm in Fort Myers, Florida, and everywhere I look, I see new shopping areas under construction. And also, on a historical note, we probably both listened to Wibbage Radio back in the day. W-I-B-G, absolutely, man. Completely. All right. I loved Wibbage. What's up? Okay. Uh, regarding the death of retail, 
unfortunately, I think for the real estate investment trust, again, too much building after a big hiatus. Although there are areas that are overbuilt again, which is where you are. I find that uh, California's getting a little overbuilt. I still don't. I mean, there's a lot of controversy about the piece I did last week about the real estate investment trust. And a lot of people feel that I was too negative. All I'm saying is, is that they are not as immune to the Death Star of Amazon than I thought at one point in my career. All right, sorry, not sorry. The bear case is just not strong enough from tariffs. Remember, that can change Friday, though, in a different story, which is interest rates. That's what I'm worried about. Oh, man, money tonight, there have been a lot of naysayers when it comes to Trump's tariff plans. But I'm talking to the CEO of one company who's welcoming the move. Do not, do not, do not miss my exclusive with Nucor our country's biggest steel company. And with so many unknowns in this market, I'm eyeing one steady any company that could be worth eyeing. Not, no matter what rattles the averages. And you may have never even heard of it. I actually am sure you haven't. And with so much happening in the pizza space, is it time to slice out one for yourself in domino stock? I'm going to sit down with the CEO. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Last week, the market had what I can only describe as a panic attack. As nearly every commentator under the sun, except yours truly, frankly, flipped out about how President Trump's new tariffs on steel and aluminum were going to cause a trade war that will wreck the global economy while causing inflation to soar. As I said last week, and I reiterated earlier, I think the bears are blowing this whole thing way out of proportion. And more importantly, anyone who's been paying attention knew that these tariffs were coming because many of our trading partners like China have been engaged in ridiculously unfair trading practices for ages. However, while the averages got slammed last week, we know at least one industry is going to be better off, and that's the domestic steel producers. And the best of the bunch is longtime Kramer fave Nucor. We have spent a gigantic amount of time with these guys, even visiting their state-of-the-art plant on the banks of the Mississippi River in Louisiana. Plus, we own it from a charitable trust. Obviously, Nucor's got a real dog in this fight, but I think it's very important that you hear their actual side to get the true picture. Fortunately, earlier today, I got a chance to check in with John Ferriola. He's the chairman, president, and CEO of Nucor. He's been one of the most prominent advocates of these steel tariffs. Take a look. John, welcome back to Mad Money. Hello, Jim. Thank you for having me. Okay, John, surprising. These were at the high end. Were you shocked? Give us a picture behind the scenes of what the president was saying. Well, right now, the president would say that he is going to be imposing a 25% tariff on steel products coming into the United States and a 10% tariff on aluminum products coming into the United States. Yeah, but give me a, uh, a feel about whether this was a surprise to you and whether it's posturing. Some people are saying this is the beginning. It's not going to happen. You should not worry about it if you're a consumer. I don't know. I mean, it seemed like pretty real for me. Uh, Jim, I think it's pretty real. And frankly, it was not a surprise to me, and it shouldn't be a surprise to others. Uh, Frankly, I'm surprised when I hear everyone say that this is coming as a shock to them. The president made this uh, promise to the American people and to the industry during his campaign. 
He's mentioned it several times over the last year while we had the study going on uh, from the International Tr uh, uh, Trade Commission. They've been doing a study for over a year. So this should not be a surprise to anyone that this is now coming to fruition. John, a lot of people are saying on air, well, wait a second, this is going to affect Canada, it's good. they're one of our partners. Uh, Brazil, Mexico's a partner. It barely impacts China. They export very little to this country. That's actually a false view of the situation, isn't it? It absolutely is. You know, certainly uh, China is a very bad actor in all of this. The amount of overcapacity they have is approximately three times of all of the steel consumed in the United States. But the issue that you, the reason you can not only focus on China is because of the spillover effect. China sends product all over to the world to other countries. They then send it into the United States. Or the Chinese steel so overwhelms the steel industries of other countries that they are forced to send into the United States. So this is a problem that spans more than just China. It's all of the countries of the world. Now, a lot of people are saying, wait a second, there's a huge number of consumers of steel in this country. This is going to jack up the price everywhere, but very few steel workers. It is unfair to the Americans who buy steel. Well, I think you have to uh, take a look at the facts in the case. If you look at automobiles as, as an example, you know, we estimate that the price of the average automobile sold in the United States, the cost of producing that car will go up about $160 on a $36,000 car. So that's a little bit less than one-half of 1%. 1 the other one that I'm hearing about all the time is the, the impact upon beer and the beer consumer in the United States. Well, Jim, the facts are that the cost of a can of beer will go up less than a penny because of the impact the, that these tariffs will have on the, on the cost of producing a can of, of, of beer. Now, can you explain to Americans right now that there are two cycles for the steel business? There's not only the business cycle, but there is a dumping cycle and that your industry has been unfairly targeted by a country that has created a dumping cycle and it has to end. Uh, without a doubt. All you need to do is to take a look at the amount of imports that have flooded into our country over the last two years. You know, the 232 investigation was initiated around April of last year. Now, you would have thought that other countries would say, look, the United States is looking hard at this. We better slow down our imports into the United States. But imports, illegally traded imports, unfairly traded imports into the United States in 2017 were actually 15 percent higher than 2016. In 2017, Jim, they accounted for 27 percent of the market in the United States. Do you think that the Chinese will blink? That, in other words, that maybe they're more of a paper tiger than we think, and we've just been patsies lying down, and it's finally, finally we care about our steel industry? Well, I think that that statement can be made uh, more than just to the Chinese. You know, I keep hearing about this is unfair to our trading partners, this is unfair to our allies around the world, and I, and I struggle with that concept. Please bear in mind that particularly the, the European Union, but most countries in the world have a 25 percent or greater VAT, value-added tax, on products going into their countries from the United States. So if we impose a 25 percent tariff, all we are doing is treating them exactly as they treat us 
relative to products coming into that country and coming into the United States. We're simply leveling the playing field, treating them the way that they have been treating us for over 30 years. Now, when I look at the defense issue, many people are telling me, you know what, that's a canard that we make. We have plenty of steel from our friends in Canada and from this country. We do not need to worry about the idea that our steel industry won't be able to produce for defense, for military, and that that is just not a reason to justify a tariff. Well, I think if you look at what's happened to the steel industry over the last 30 to 40 years, you go back and say 1985 to today, there's a full one third of the steel industry that does not exist today that existed back in 1985. So you see a steel industry that is being decimated in the United States. If that continues, I don't know how anyone can argue that we would be able to have a strong national defense if we do not have a strong steel industry in the United States. And bear in mind that it's more than just steel going into military applications. I hear that argument a lot. But you also have to have a, a strong steel industry to have strong infrastructure. Strong infrastructure creates a strong economy. A strong economy ensures a strong national defense. All right, John, your company's making a lot of money. My travel trust owns Nucor because it is so profitable. I want to know, one, why you need protection if your company's so profitable, and two, is there really a difference between Chinese steel and steel made by Nucor? Well, first of all, we don't see it as protection. Okay, we see it as enforcing our trade laws effectively against countries that are abusing those trade laws. And in terms of uh, Nucor having a good year, well, we did have a good year, too. In 2017, it was a good year. But as you mentioned earlier in the show, we're in a very, very cyclical business. We're at a good time in the cycle right now. But I would suggest that you go back and look at the tougher years in 2009, 2010, and see what it's, uh, how much of a struggle it's been for the entire industry during those down cycles. And Chinese steel, do you want that in our tanks? Chinese steel in our bridges? How do you feel? I certainly do not want them. I do not want them in our tanks. I mentioned that to you before. If my son's going to have to be go to war, I do not want him going to war sitting inside of a tank produced with Chinese steel. I want it to be good, strong, high-quality, American-made by American workers steel in that tank. John Ferriola, CEO, Nucor. Thank you so much for coming on Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. Even after today's rebound, I think it's worth hunting for some high-quality stocks that have gotten more attractive here in the wake of last week's brutal decline. Now, regular viewers know I have a lot of sources in different industries, including the chemical industry. And lately, I've been hearing a lot of positive things about a mid-cap chemical company from professional money managers I've known for years. The company's called Trinzio. All right, open hand. It's a Philadelphia base maker of plastic products, synthetic rubber, latex binders, along with basic building block uh, commodity chemicals like polystyrene, polyethylene. I've heard so much enthusiasm about Trinzio that I just had to check it out myself. You can't just take someone's word for this stuff. You got to do the homework. My verdict, there is a lot going right for Trinzio. 
and I'm a fan of this stock, particularly if we get more sell-offs caused by trade war fear-mongering like last week and briefly again this morning. So what makes me feel good about this particular one, and how come you've probably never heard of it before? Okay, Trinzio was created back in 2010, seven years ago, when the old Dow Chemical decided to spin off a bunch of its more commoditized businesses and sell them to an outfit called Bain Capital. It was for $1.63 billion. As a new company, it was called Styron which later changed its name to Trincio. Fast forward to 2014, and Bain took Trincio public. Honestly, I wish, of course, I had started recommending this one back then. His stock is it's more than quadrupled from its IPO price. Gained 61% in 2015, another 110 in 2016%. Put on 22% last year, and just since the beginning of 2018, it's up over 9%. Okay, it's a stunning trajectory, which then begs the question, why has Trinzio been such a phenomenal performer? Some of it has to do with the fact that this is a highly cyclical company and it's come public during a period of global stagnation. Now, go to 2016 and the stock takes off like a rocket, mainly because its end markets finally improved after years of languishing in the wake of the financial crisis. I'll say this again. Trincio is a commodity chemical maker, and that means it's about as cyclical as it gets. That's the whole reason Dow offloaded the business in 2010. Too hard to predict. When the global economy is weak, Trincio's numbers are weak. When the global economy is strong, it can put up some stunning growth numbers. It's a boom and bust business. And right now, make no mistake about it, we are in boom times. The other thing is the Bain Capital finally sold its stake in the business. Short term, we don't like it when a new IPO's private equity backer sells their stock en masse. But long term, it's generally a good thing when the backer is perceived as simply taking profits. Basically, it's removing the overhang. If you were worried about owning Trincio because someday Bain would sell its enormous stake, flooding the market with supply, well, you don't need to be afraid anymore. They're gone. They've already sold. But this this story is mainly about the business cycle. I wish everyone had taken that class. You would understand this is the company they would use in class. It's finally Trinzio's time to shine. And I don't think the stock's moment in the sun is over, even though obviously it's already had a big move. When I say this is the consummate cyclical stock, what do I really mean? All right, here's an educational course. Uh, consider the numbers. Trincio sales were down a moderate amount in 2014, then down 22% in 2015. Not so hot economies are lousy for demand. And that puts pressure on Trincio's margins because when fewer companies want to buy your basic building block chemicals and plastics like this one, then the price naturally goes lower. The revenue shrinkage continued for most of 2016 until the very last quarter when it turned up 2.5%. Get this. Then as the economy really started to accelerate, all aboard! Trincio's numbers caught fire, consistently up 17 to 25% last year. And this is the kind of business where the gross margin, what you make after the cost of goods sold, rises along with your sales. In 2014, Trincio's gross margins came in at 5.8%. In the latest quarter, they were stunning, 16.7%. Now, some of that's pure cyclicality, but a lot of it is because U.S. chemical producers are in hog heaven right now. I could name a dozen of them that are strong. And uh, that's because of our abundant domestic supplies of oil and natural gas, which are important ingredients for much of the stuff these guys make. This is part of the industrial re-revolution in this country. Wow, I like that. The industrial re-revolution. I'm using that from now on. All right, let's see. Booming revenues, rising margins. Put it together and you end up with some stunning earnings growth. But isn't it too late to get in this one? Hasn't Trincio been running for years? What makes this a good time to own it right as everybody's freaking out about a trade war slamming the brakes on global commerce? You know what? 
Let me outsource some of this to the excellent Frank Mitch of Wells Fargo. He's been a beacon for me. He's been very right on this stock for a very long time. And a terrific piece from late January. Mitch laid out all of his reasons for recommending the stock here. And given that Trinzio is still trading at the same levels thanks to the recent shellacking, I think his stuff is pertinent. In particular, Mitch points out that Trincio's inventory seems to be very lean. That's a key portion of whether your gross margin is going to be big. And its production is going to be pretty restrained for the first quarter. So they're not going to glut the market. About 20% of global styrene capacity is offline. That's huge. Yeah, offline right now. Styrene pricing, which translates into higher earnings, it's the sweet spot. How about more recent developments? Trinzio hit an all-time high on January 29th at $85 and change, right after the company pre-announced some fabulous earnings numbers. Management predicted they would earn $2.10, $2.18 per share. Wall Street was only looking for $1.66. Holy cow. That's what I mean when I say these cyclicals can produce stunning earnings in, in global ex- economic expansion. Some people would sell the stuff that don't have big earnings growth and boom, move it into Trinzio. But Trinzio had the misfortune of pre-announcing these numbers right before the big market-wide breakdown. The strength of its business was forgotten as the panic sent the stock plunging to $71 a share at the lows on February 9th. When the company finally reported its actual fourth quarter numbers a couple weeks ago, it didn't get much credit for them because they were seen as being baked in thanks to that earlier pre-announcement. But the stock is still below where it was trading before Trinzio dramatically boosted its forecast. You were basically getting this excellent quarter for free. And look, even after its monster run over the past few years, Trinzio still sells for a measly eight times next year's earnings estimates. You thought you missed anything cheap, right? Well, like at the top of the show, we mentioned a mic run. How about eight times earnings for Trinzia? Average stock's almost, you know, 18, 19 times earnings. Of course, um, the, a low multiple like that is often a sign that investors don't believe the numbers or they expect the estimates will need to be cut. Trinzio's case, there's a real concern. The company gets about 20% of its sales from China and Hong Kong, and it's not unimaginable that the Chinese might slap an anti-dumping duty on many of Trinzio's building block chemicals. But even if that happens, this stuff is so commoditized that I don't think it would hurt them very much, in part because supplies remain so tight. And frankly, the stock would still be cheap even if the company lost a big chunk of its Chinese business and it sold, say, for 10 times earnings, although, of course, the stock will get hit. Bottom line, sure, Trinzio has rallied dramatically from the economy, but the economy is still in amazing shape. And this is exactly the kind of U.S.-based chemical company that does well when commerce is booming. I'm going to be coming back to Trinzio over and over again. I say Trinzio is a terrific buy, especially if we get another sell-off based on overhyped trade war worries. Business is booming here, and booms don't just end on a dime. This one has legs as there's so little spare capacity. One day that will change, but not anytime soon which is why I think it's still not too late to pick up some Trinzio, which I am sure you have never heard of until now. Denise in Minnesota. Denise! Hey, Jim. Thanks for everything you do. Oh, you're quite welcome, Denise. Thank you for those nice words. What's going on? Well, um, lithium prices have been falling globally. However, the CEO of Sociedad Chemica says that... uh, Lithium demand will be up 80% a year for the next five years. Uh, should I buy some? No, no, no. I am very concerned. I think there could be real oversupply of lithium. I agree with you that things are really getting hot in that world, but I think society that chemical can produce an awful lot. So I have pulled back from the idea that lithium is going to be a huge story for 2018. I say be careful out there. All right, I got a commodity chemical company that I like. It is not too late to pick up some Trinzio. 
Sure, the stock's made a big run, but business is booming. And I think there's more upside, not a lot of supply coming into the market. Much more may have money ahead, including my exclusive with Domino's. Could it be worth taking a bite of the pie player if this big run? Then, this market is so caught up in the tariff war, you may have missed one of the greatest stories out there. It is right in front of your face, believe me, and I'll reveal it. And all your calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Fast is going west in search of digital gold. We're at the most important blockchain conference in America to talk to the biggest names and investors in Bitcoin. That's tomorrow at 5 p.m. on Fast Money. What do you do when a phenomenal CEO has created massive amounts of shareholder value? decides to retire? That's the big question when it comes to Domino's Pizza DPC, the huge chain that's been best of breed for years thanks to the leadership of longtime CEO Patrick Doyle. He's stepping down in June. Remember, Doyle's the guy who came in and acknowledged that Domino's made lousy pizza, even compared it unfavorably with the taste of the darn cardboard packaging before fixing the recipe, along with a host of other problems, uh, and rolling out a fabulous online ordering platform that just gets better and better. Let me put it this way. The first time he came on on the show, a little over eight years ago, Domino's was a $10 stock. Now it's 220 and there's been special dividends in the interim. On the one hand, it hurts to lose such a great leader. On the other hand, deep bench here, good shape. Most recent quarter reported two weeks ago, plenty strong. But last week's nasty action erased all the stocks post-earnings gains. So what's the future look like for this terrific pizza chain? Let's take a moment to speak with and, of course, congratulate the great Patrick Doyle, president and CEO of Domino's Pizza. Get a better sense of how this company's doing, where it's headed. Mr. Doyle, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. All right, Patrick. Domino's celebrating the opening of the 15,000 store. I did not know you've been opening roughly three stores a day around the world. Significance of 15,000? Yeah, look, it's, it's a big milestone for us, but at the end of the day, what's driving it is fabulous unit economics around the world. And so the franchisees are excited. It's generating great returns for them. So, you know, we've been opening basically over a thousand stores a year the last few years. So we've had a thousand store opening, uh, you know, each of the last couple of years. Pretty exciting. How can you be sure that there aren't too many? The reason I say that is because we recently profiled Papa John's they finally have what I regard as the first really bad quarter and indicated that perhaps there are issues. Is the pizza category at last hitting a wall? No, the pizza category is doing great. And, you know, and, and I guess, you know, what, what gives me most confidence, again, is the, is the growth of the units. We know the, the profitability of the stores. Our franchisees are excited. You know, so in terms of, you know, how many is too many, Look, 95% of the world is outside of the U.S., uh, and, uh, you know, and, and we don't even have twice as many stores outside of the U.S. as in the U.S. We're at about 5,500 stores in the U.S., and we're convinced we can get to 8,000 in the U.S. So lots of growth still in the U.S. and even more growth outside of the U.S., long way for us to go. All right, well, but how do we deal with the fact that this quarter, which we were uh, unfortunately dark on, 4.2% comp and two, uh, domestic, 2.5% international. Is there an issue that you've just done so well that it's hard to top them? Well, you know, look, I mean, we were rolling over very big numbers from the previous year, but uh, the 4.2 is kind of right in the middle of our three to six guidance. There was actually about a half a point that we lost in the fourth quarter because uh, New, Year's, uh, New Year's Eve or New Year's Day fell in the wrong year. Okay. That'll come back in the first quarter for us. 
Same thing happened on international. So it was about a two and a half, would have been a three. But uh, we, we did have one little issue in international, which was Japan uh, hit a bit of a bump. But, uh, you know, that's, that's under our master franchisee in Australia. They already released the first five or six weeks of the year when they rolled out their, uh, their mid-year results. And it had already picked back up again. So right, a temporary thing there. We're on track. Feel great about where the business is. All right. Is. That's very helpful. Now, uh, tax reform. Uh, you have always uh, returned capital it's in some form or another. Special dividends, right. probably one of the best best records I know. Buyback. Suddenly you get this windfall from taxes. Uh, what does it mean? What does it mean for shareholders? Yeah, well, what it means is you know the, the, the after-tax return on investment for every investment we make has gone up. So... You know, it certainly gives us some opportunity to make some incremental investments in the business. That has always been our first priority is find things that are going to generate great returns for our investors in the business. We're going to invest in our people. But then that also still after all of that is going to generate some more additional free cash flow. We'll go through the same process we always do to figure out what's going to generate the best return for our shareholders whether that's, uh, you know, that's uh, more buyback or special dividends, anything like that. We're agnostic. We've done all of those things over time. Um, and, uh, and it's you know, certainly tax reform overall. Great thing for the business. Great thing for our shareholders. All right. Now, you're passing on the baton and the bench is deep. Everybody says it, so I certainly don't want to disagree. Do you give a directive, uh, for instance, to say, you know what, we have to have driverless uh, cars. This is pretty much what's going to happen in the next five years. I task you with that. Is that a big issue for Domino's? Well, you're clearly going to see transportation change around the world in the U.S. You know, we think it's three to five years out, and so we're investing heavily. We announced the second round of testing with Ford down in Miami last week. So we are absolutely looking at it. We're investing aggressively. We're looking at, you know, at how that transportation change is going to affect our customers, how they interact with us. They've got to come out of their homes or their apartments to get the pizza. So we're learning about that investing. We think it's a great opportunity for us, uh, but clearly something we're going to continue investing in, and, and, uh, and it's coming. All right, last question. When I talked to you last time, you still didn't know what you're going to do. You're still going to uh, play close to the vest or have uh, figured it out? Uh, no, you know what? I really don't. I am focused on finishing strong here June 30. I'm going to take the back half of the year, figure out what's next at that point. But uh, still no idea what that's going to be. All right, well, the stock's had a good run again, and I think it's not done. I want to thank Patrick Doyle, president and CEO of Domino's. What a horse. Man, money's back into the break. It is time! It's time to the And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate! Dive it! Time for the lightning round. It's over with Eddie in Georgia. Eddie! Booyah, Kramer. Hey, we appreciate all your help. and uh, Thank you. And uh, thanks a lot for everything you do for us. Thank you. What's your outlook on uh, BB, Blackberry? I think it goes higher because I think the software and the install base are so big, nobody cares except for me. Let's go to Dave in Virginia. Dave. Hey, Jimbo. Oh. A Philadelphia Eagle bully up from the yes, Dallas Cowboys. What is about? What is, tell me about KMI. No, KMI isn't making the playoffs. What are you coming to me on my show with KMI? That's like the Cleveland Browns of the, oil, of the uh, pipeline business. I say, Ixnay, don't buy. Don't buy. No. First round draft pick, Dave. 
No, forget that. Not in this business. Can I go to Bob in New York, please? Bob. Yeah, hey, Jim. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. How are you? I'm all right. How about you? Good, good. Jim, uh, question on CVS. Is it a buy? No, when you want to buy United Health, you and each full pet name, action alerts. Eric in Texas. Eric. How you doing, Jim? This is Eric from Wiley College, and I'm talking about AKS. No, I'm not talking about AKS. I'm talking about NUE. You want to be a new corp. We always pay out for best of We don't go down. Let's go to PT in North Carolina. PT. Booyah, Jim. How you doing? I am doing well. How about you, partner? Um, I'm doing okay. Just wanted to get your take on COF, Capital That's One. That's easy. I'm a buyer of COF. It's one of the banks that I like that's going to do better with higher rates. I do prefer others, but you're going to be doing fine with that. Caleb in Kentucky, Caleb. Booyah, Kramer. Booyah. It's Caleb from Park County, Kentucky. Right nice. In the heart what? Of country. Nice. What's up? I'm 22. I'm a young investor. I'm going into a career as a financial advisor. I'm calling to ask about AVAS and if I should buy it right before it's earnings. You know what? You're tomorrow. 22. That means you got your whole life ahead of you, and I'm willing to speculate on a good drone company that's really making a specialization in agriculture. I looked at one with my wife, by the way, recently because of our property in Italy. Uh, she said it didn't make sense, but I'm going to override her. But I shouldn't have said that on here. Uh, can I go to Marie in Florida, please? Marie. Hey, Jim. How are you? I'm all right. How about you? I'm great. I'm great. Congratulations, by the way. Continue congratulations on that Super Bowl win. Uh, yeah, I live with it every day. I wake up when I go to bed. Yeah, what's going on? I sleep in my Eagles pajamas. What's happening? A little more information you need there. <laughs> Say, can you give me your take on intuitive surgical? Yeah, that's an easy take. I think it's going to enjoy it by my. It's one of my all-time favorites on Mad Money there. Isn't that easy? Let's go to Steve in New Jersey. Steve. Good evening, Jim. Uh, Good evening. The stock is Nutanix, Inc., N-T-N-Y. All right, I thought that quarter was really good. It got caught up on a bad day when it reported. I think it's a buy. Oh, no, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Let's not get so caught up in arguing the merits of free trade versus protectionism that we end up missing out on one of the greatest stories of the era, the incredible comeback of the personal computer. Now, it's a tough narrative to swallow. I myself didn't believe in it until HP Inc. reported yet another fabulous quarter, at which point the PC's resurgence simply became undeniable. And it's not just that this business has picked up a little bit. In this business, well, let's just say we're always searching everywhere in mad money for something that's double-digit growth, right? That's really kind of the mantra of the show, uh, and whatever we can find it. And the shocking thing about that last quarter from HP was that we found double-digit growth in notebooks, up 14%, double-digit growth in desktops, up 17%, in workstations, up 11%. These are all the more abundant categories. For years, the only growth in the industry had come from cell phones. Now the numbers are reversed. The PC's roaring while phones have been slowing down. This is a very big deal for the many companies involved in the personal computer food chain, and it makes their stocks look a heck of a lot cheaper than I thought. Why don't we start with Micron, symbol MU. I think this well-run maker of dynamic random access memory, or DRAMs, and flash memory, okay, is the biggest beneficiary of the resurgence. Micron hit a brand new 52-week high today. It totally broke out. Yet it still sells for about five times earnings. That's wrong. Everyone expected the pricing for Micron products would soon collapse. The estimates would turn out to be too high. 
HP just told us pricing would remain strong through the rest of the year. That means Micron will likely meet or even exceed the numbers. And if that's the case, its stock is way too cheap. It is a buy on this breakout, but it's not just what we heard from HP. In a little notice interview last week, Morgan Stanley's Joseph Moore sat down with some of Micron's management team. It blew me away. This darn thing blew me away. They told a very compelling story, and particularly about their exposure to the rapidly growing data center space, which I knew about, but I had no idea it could be this fabulous. It's joined at the hip of the rise of cloud computing. And the servers in these data farms, what do they do? They eat flash like nothing else on earth. That also means, by the way, Western Digital, the maker of hard drives and flash memory, is also a buy here with the stock trading at nearly six times earnings estimates. Same thesis as Micron. Yeah, I'm real positive on these things. Oh, and if the personal computer is growing again, it makes no sense that Intel, one of the best semiconductor companies in our trades, at just 14 times earnings. Intel still owns the processor business. It's got a great management team. And the company also has a burgeoning autonomous driving division. AMD should be breaking out. Okay, its stock's not as cheap as the others. But unlike everyone else, AMD also makes graphics chips for gaming, perhaps the hottest area in tech outside of cloud. And if you think about AMD, then you should jump all over. It's better, stronger, faster, better NVIDIA, where there's a gigantic seller who was relentless today, but one day that seller will finish. Meanwhile, the boom in all these chips tells me that semiconductor capital equipment makers like Applied Materials and Lammer Search, whose stocks have been stalled, have spent enough time in the penalty boxes, time to merit their attention. Let me tell you, I see tremendous pin action off of Micron. The themes are too great to ignore. The PC suppliers are back, and most of them are way too cheap, even though their stocks have run. I bet they'll end up looking like bargains down the road when these companies start beating their estimates left and right as their underlying business is finally booming again. Stick with Craig. I'm always looking for inexpensive stocks after a plus 400, 500, whatever, Dow day, a 1% gain S&P day. And here's what I'm telling you. I think it rests in Micron. It's in Western Digital. It's in Intel. It is in these low multiple PC stock related chips. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Kelly Evans host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then.